Happy Saturday and thank you for joining me today. It's been a long week. Uh, it is Saturday. You made it to the weekend. Congratulations. Uh, it is the first Saturday of the new year. It is the first weekend of the new year. If you're already feeling exhausted or a bit stressed out, um, just be glad that you were not in Congress this week. <laughs> we're going to start off with a question. Um, are you the kind of person that eats your popcorn during the previews or during the movie? Like if you're sitting in the movie theater, if you're at home, are you the type of person that's eating your popcorn during like the previews or like as the movie begins? For me personally, um, by the time we get to the movie, I'm going to need another bag, you know, because I simply can't wait. It's like you're actively watching the previews before the movie and you're already starting to start, you know, eating on the popcorn. And, you know, sometimes it's just good to wait. It's just good to wait for the bigger things, the climactic effects, you know, the bigger moments. And that's what House Democrats did this week. You know, they just, they sat there and they waited. Um trolling Republicans during the speaker vote by eating popcorn, bringing blankets, reading books, uh, bringing their kids. It was a whole spectacle. And although it took like 15,000 hours to finally get to the movie, at 12 a.m. this morning in Washington, D.C., after four long, exhausting days and 15 ballots, making this the fifth longest speaker vote in U.S. history, breaking the 1923 record of nine ballots, applause erupted in the House chamber because Kevin McCarthy was officially elected Speaker of the House. And, you know, the movie the movie officially began. And so the opposition this week, it started, it grew from like 9 to 14 to even 21 Republicans voting for other members and also voting present. McCarthy could only afford to lose five members. And of course, that was well, that number was well eclipsed on the first day. So we knew this would be a long week, even, you know, a long month, perhaps. And this week was really just simply chaotic. And this is how we're beginning our new Congress. I mean, for all the jokes that trolled Republicans this week on Twitter and other social media sites, like choose all the images with the speaker and everything is checked except for Kevin's face. And you know, Democrats eating popcorn on the floor. It really is just embarrassing and also a foresight for what the Republican-controlled House will look like. And we're going to be talking about that extensively tonight. But, you know, as laughable and complex and born out and laborious as this was, it was also equally dangerous as it was comedic. Because if you just turn back a couple chapters here, in the 1850s, Congress went through a similar issue. We talked about this earlier this week here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. It was a debacle that spanned two months and took 133 ballots. And they weren't just fighting over the speakership. The larger issue was the hot topic and the biggest debate in the country at the time, slavery. It created chaos and infighting throughout the party, throughout the country. The Whig Party was slowly and, you know, quite frankly, whittling away. The Democratic Party was fractured. The racist, anti-immigrant, know-nothing party was gaining attraction with new members. And the anti-slavery Republican Party was just born. In December of 1855, the House began voting on the speakership, and it was just, you know, complete chaos. I mean, every time they voted, members would vote for different people other than the person running to be speaker. Christmas came and Christmas passed. Still no speaker. New Year's Eve turned into New Year's Day. Still no speaker. 
Congress ended the month of December alone with 84 ballots. 84 times, and they failed to elect a speaker. In a desperate attempt, uh, attempted resolution in early January of 1856 in the new year, American Party Congressman Felix uh, Zollicoffer presented a bill requiring the three member, three main candidates to state their view on slavery, on slavery, you know, expanding to the West. He's like, okay, come on, guys. It's a new year. It's January. We've been, we failed voting on this 84 times in December. Let's at least get this through. And so everyone agreed with this new bill. They started debating and things just blew up from there. They got wild. When a reporter from the New York Times condemned Democrat Albert Russ for going against Republican Nathaniel Banks for the speakership, he literally found that reporter and punched him in the head on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol. Later that day, he took his cane and beat him near the National Hotel. He beat a reporter. This, a congressman beat a reporter. This was in the 1850s. Up until then, Southerners held mostly all the speakerships, but Nathaniel Banks pulled through. He finally, on the 133rd ballot, became Speaker of the House. It was a big win for the anti-slavery movement, but what it took and what could have happened simply would not be lost to history. The extremists of the party were willing to use violence if necessary. They were willing to use violence if they had to, to keep an anti-slavery speaker out of Congress. A reporter was punched and viciously assaulted, and that wasn't the only time. In the 1859 to 1860 speaker election, just during the first eight weeks in office, just during the first eight weeks of the new Congress, there were a total of nine physical fights. Nine, not to mention multiple heated verbal arguments. The governor of South Carolina at the time, William Gist, suggested that if a Republican was elected speaker, he should, quote, be ejected by force if necessary. His wife vowed to use knives if they had to. Guns were reached for by congressmen and congress. Tensions were high, but ultimately no blood was shed. No one was killed. But to get there, to reach that level, to get elected, certainly took compromise and promises and deals. Numerous deals. Joanne Freeman um, is a professor of American studies at Yale University and the author of The Field of Blood. And she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times last night as all of this came to an end. She says here, quote, It's tempting to laugh at the strut and fret that took place in the House, much of it seemingly signifying nothing. But it was not just theatrics, and it was not a joke. It was a symptom of a dysfunctional party that is questionably anchored in a democratic politics and a glaringly obvious sign of things to come. Given Mike Rogers' near lunge at Matt Gates on Friday night, it's also an eerie echo of things past. The House has elected a speaker, but that won't put an end to the inter-sing Republican battles. They will continue entangling Congress and stymieing national politics in the process. Politics is a team sport that requires captains, congressional politics even more so. Today's congressional Republicans are not a team. They have no captain and they have not displayed their, excuse me, 
and they have displayed their failings for all the world to see. In effect, we're witnessing the rupture of the Republican Party. The ultimate outcome of Republicans is continuing failure to stand up to extremism within their own ranks. In choosing to remain silent in the face of their right wing's politics of destruction, they have essentially endorsed it. Their silence in the face of Donald Trump's lies and his election loss denial did the same, laying the groundwork for the upheaval that we're watching now. That upheaval reflects the state of our nation, but it's shaping the nation as well. The speakership battles of 1855 to 1856 and 59 and 60 schooled the nation in the power of sectional threats, defiance, and even violent opposition. The public learned their lesson and responded in kind. The lessons of our speakership battles are yet unknown. It's encouraging to think that there are moderate Republicans who don't support this brand of politics. There are certainly many. But until they organize themselves and oppose their in-house opposition, they're pushing the nation even closer to a dangerous edge and defining the Republican Party in the process. End quite. Last night, Kevin McCarthy, on the fourth night, well, technically it was this morning, so on the fifth day, he gave his first ever speech as the newly elected speaker with 216 votes. The max, technically, the majority you're supposed to get is 218. But of course, other members of his caucus voting present. So he got 216, which is the majority of members who, you know, voted, actually voted for someone. And out of all of the falsehoods and mirrored politics, mirrored patriotic speech he gave. This is what caught my attention the most, because this is something that you should be watching for this year very closely. Yes, Republicans have the House now. They took the House. They have a slim majority. That doesn't mean they're going to really do anything legislatively with that power for the Americantive relating to protecting or keeping and sustaining democracy. They are just happy that they got to stop the Biden agenda legislatively for the House because the House is in Republican control and the House and the Senate is in Democratic control. So those two branches cannot necessarily work together to complete legislation given the hyper-partisanship of Washington, D.C. right now. So they are happy that they have stopped the Biden agenda legislatively. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to not do anything with that power. What they will do with that power instead is yielded against the very institutions and forces that protect our democracy today. That is a danger that really no one is talking about. I mean, some people are talking about it, but it's not a mainstream talking point at the moment. But last night, the newly elected Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, he made that very clear on the floor. We will hold the swamp accountable. From the withdrawal of Afghanistan, to the origins of COVID, and to the weaponization of the FBI. Let me be very clear. We will use the power of the purse and the power of the subpoena to get the job done. Quote, let me be very clear. We will use the power of the purse and the power of the subpoena to get the job done. End quote. 
That was Speaker Kevin McCarthy there, also referring to the, quote, weaponization of the FBI. He also, you know, talked about the origins of COVID, so potentially investigations of the CDC. But by the weaponizations of the FBI, what he means by that is the investigations that began under the Trump administration when the former president incited a violent, deadly insurrection against the United States, with his supporters converging on the Capitol. Yesterday was the two-year anniversary of that assault on U.S. democracy as offenders are still being prosecuted and jailed. Last year, the leader of the Oath Keepers and his ringleaders were charged and found guilty of sedition. That's a federal crime that is hard to prove. Literally, it has failed so many times in federal court, but they were found guilty of sedition. That's a federal crime that carries a sentence up to 20 years in federal prison. A former president who incited that insurrection continues to spew lies about the 2020 election that have gotten people hurt and killed and stoked, stalked, excuse me, threatened, you know, and it's, he's taken classified and top secret documents to a public golf resort in Florida where literally anyone can enter. We know of people such as a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi sympathizer, a foreign nationalist meeting with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And for that to happen, it has to be approved by the Secret Service, which still protects former presidents. So that information could very well be compromised. We're talking U.S. secrets here. That's a major national security concern. And Kevin McCarthy, the new Speaker of the House, is vowing that he and the new Republican majority in the House are going to go after the very agencies and institutions that are playing a central role in investigating and holding accountable the people who literally seek to tear our nation apart and subvert our democracy for their own personal benefit and self-aggrandizement. I mean, it is absolutely demonstrably preposterous but it's it's dangerous you know we can laugh that it took 15 ballots for kevin mccarthy to finally become speaker but now the question is what will he do with that power what will republicans do with their newly awarded majority this is where we stand as a country and we really should start preparing ourselves for the inevitable because it is coming the 2024 presidential election is right around the corner Timothy Snyder is a person uh, for all you TJPS listeners that I, all you, all of you know that I have, you know, I've said his name multiple times here on the show. He's the uh, professor at Yale University. He is also the author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. In his new illustrative edition of his book, he expands on the rules that he listed and he, he goes into a bit detail. This is rule number two, defend institutions. Quote, it is institutions that help us to preserve, decency, to preserve decency. They need our help as well. Do not speak of our institutions unless you make them yours by acting on their behalf. Institutions do not protect themselves. They fall one after the other, and other unless each is defended from the beginning. So choose an institution you care about, a court, a newspaper, a law, a labor union, and take its side. We tend to assume that institutions will automatically maintain themselves against even the most direct attacks. This was the very mistake that German Jews made about Hitler and the Nazis after they had formed a government. 
On February 2, 1933, for example, a leading newspaper for German Jews published an editorial expressing the mislaid trust, quote, We do not subscribe to that view that Mr. Hitler and his friends now finally in possession of the power they have long desired will implement the proposals circulating in Nazi newspapers. They will not suddenly deprive German Jews of their constitutional rights, nor enclose them in ghettos, nor subject them to jealous and murderous impulses of the mob. They cannot do this because a number of crucial factors hold powers in check, and they clearly do not want to go down that road. When one acts as a European power, the whole atmosphere tends towards ethical ethical reflection upon one's better self away from revisiting one's earlier oppositional posture. Such was the view of the many reasonable people in 1933, just as it is the view of many reasonable people now. Snyder goes on to say, quote, The mistake is to assume that rulers who come to power through institutions cannot change or destroy those very institutions, even when that is exactly what they have announced that they will do. End quote. So yes, I mean, that that hits very, very hard. Yes, we live in a democracy. We have lived in a democratic republic for 240-something years. Yes, that is well over, you know, two centuries. But, and, you know, sometimes us in the United States, we get a little bit, you know, I guess self-preserving when it comes to the fact that, oh, autocracy and dictatorship and, and such can happen here. Authoritarianism can't possibly happen in the United States of America. Yes, Kevin McCarthy just said that he's going to go after those institutions. But is he actually going to do that? Come on, we're a democracy. We're rule of law government. We have checks and balances. That can't actually happen. Let me read you this one more time. Quote, the mistake is to assume that rulers who came to power through institutions cannot change or destroy those very institutions, even when that is exactly what they have announced that they will do. Revolutionaries sometimes do intend to destroy institutions all at once. Whether it is simultaneous or gradual, if this is what a leader is proposing, if this is what a leader says, we should believe them. We simply cannot assume that because we are a democracy and because we have democratic guardrails that their plans will falter, their attempts will become void. This is what Timothy Snyder has warned us. Absolutely mind-boggling. And in chapter 17 here, rule number 17, he says here, quote, listen for dangerous words. Be alert to the use of the words extremism and terrorism. Be alive to the fatal notions of emergency and exception. Be angry about the treacherous use of patriotic vocabulary. He goes on to write here, quote, when politicians today invoke terrorism, they are speaking, of course, of an actual danger. But when they try to train us to surrender freedom in the name of safety, we should be on our guard. There is no necessary trade-off between the two. Sometimes we intend, excuse me, sometimes we do indeed gain one by losing the other, and sometimes not. People who assure you that you can only gain security at the price of liberty usually want to deny you both. You can certainly concede freedom without becoming more secure. The feeling of submission to authority might be comforting, but it is not the same thing as actual safety. 
Likewise, gaining a bit of freedom may be unnerving, but this momentary unease is not dangerous. It is easy to imagine situations where we sacrifice both freedom and safety. When we lose our health care, begin as an abusive relationship, or vote for a fascist. Similarly, it is not hard to imagine choices that increase both freedom and safety, like seeing a doctor leaving an abusive relationship or immigrating from a fascist state. It is the government's job to increase both freedom and security. Extremism certainly sounds bad, and government often tries to make it sound worse by using the words terrorism in the same sentence. But the word has little meaning. There is no doctrine called extremism. When tyrants speak, of extremists, they just mean people who are not in the mainstream, as the tyrants themselves are defining that mainstream at the particular moment. Dissidents of the 20th century, whether they were resisting fascism or communism, were called extremists. Modern authoritarian regimes, such as Russia, use laws or extremism to punish those who criticize their policies. In this way, the notion of extremism comes to mean virtually everything except what it is. In fact, extreme tyranny. Of course, I mean... We have reached a point in our country where it appears that the politics, the the moral compass of the nation, the ethical conglomeration of what used to be our two democratic functioning parties in the United States, it appears we have become unhinged. Foreign powers this week were laughing, enjoying the speaker fails enjoying the multiple ballots that it took for Kevin McCarthy to become speaker. I'm sure, of course, there also was big enjoyment and, you know, great joy in what almost happened yesterday when a fight almost broke out on the House floor. Republicans won the House. Yes, they did. They won the House in the 2022 midterm elections. They are now beginning their power. Members of Congress were sworn in last night. When Republicans come back on Monday, when the whole House comes back on Monday, they're going to pass a rules package. They didn't do it, you know, last night because McCarthy didn't have the votes. Will he have the votes on Monday? We don't know. I mean, we are watching a fractured Republican Party begin here. Already divided. It took them 15 ballots, 15 votes to decide on who their speaker will be. Six members voted present at the end of it. Not th- Those are six members that still did not ultimately vote for McCarthy. So this could be six wild cards in the Republican caucus as chaos continues to unfold. Yes, we are a democracy. Yes, we are a democratic republic. But if this is how we are going to begin a new Congress, if this is how the Republican Party is going to begin a new Congress, if this is how we are going to function... What will happen for the next two years in this Congress? Will they actually get any legislation done? Or should we actually be preparing ourselves for the inevitable here, which is the demonization of our federal institutions, of our institutions that are protecting our democracy by watching them being investigated and hounded after and subpoenaed by this new Republican Congress, as the new speaker just promised, and just vowed that they will do. 
Eyes open, heads up, stay focused. This is the new 118th Congress. Nothing should be lost here. Nothing should be lost. Keep your eyes open. Keep watching. We got a lot more head tonight. Stay with us. Whether you put down your phone to be there for your daughter. Or pick up your phone to call a helpline for your roommate. When it comes to mental health, now more than ever, every action counts. Welcome back. So I have a friend in my newspaper class, and she just um, I just asked her basically uh, what she thought about the speaker vote and the fact that it took 15 ballots. And also, what does this say about the new Republican House majority and what exactly they will do? This was her response. Quote, I think it was a great reflection about the state of the government and Republican Party. That one simple vote of the leader had to be dragged kicking and screaming towards an election. While McCarthy might have a Republican majority, he has no power. And so the Republicans, that is to say moderate Republicans, have no power due to the amount of concessions he has made to get the speakership. I think it will be a long two years of no progress in the House if McCarthy even makes it that long. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, all of what she said is, you know, it's factual, you know, because, yeah, there were lots of concessions for McCarthy to become the speakership. Lots of what pundits and political prognosticators are talking about last night essentially is what did McCarthy promise all those people? What did he promise Matt Gates after that almost fight erupted on the House floor? Like, a lot was happening last night. A lot was happening in the lead-up to this climactic final 15th ballot vote. So, I mean, a lot was definitely compromised here. The power of the speakership was definitely weakened. Very, very much so. McCarthy has little power. He has given that power. He has reinstalled it back into the rank and file. And when she says, if he makes it that long, quote, I think it will be a long two years of no progress in the House if McCarthy even makes it that long. When she says that, that means, you know, Republicans basically for since John Boehner and also Paul Ryan basically have had this thing where they can fire the speaker where rank and file members of Congress can fire the speaker of the house. If they are not satisfied the moment McCarthy screws up the moment McCarthy tries to be right or doesn't follow Trump's every word or something like that, or doesn't go along with the extremists of the party or follow along with a mainstream idea. Republicans very well in the House could seek to oust him. And so, like, if he doesn't go along with something that Republicans are going to want to do, which is, of course, the impeachment of President Joe Biden, we could very well see McCarthy ousted as Speaker of the House. We could very well see an extremist rise to that position. A far-right Speaker of the House, a far-right leader. I mean, honestly, it is, it is just, it is sad. But this is where we are. The power of the speakership has been weakened. Yes, McCarthy is the Speaker of the House, and yes, McCarthy has risen to that level, but the amount of concessions he made this week to get that speakership, I mean, it was undeniably unbelievable. We are not in unprecedented times, but these are certainly times where the fight for democracy is getting more and more intense each day. 
We'll be right back. Stay with us. I love my new home. I always wanted a house with historic architecture, but it might be too Victorian. Gosh, interesting hemline on this. Pants? Yes, I do believe they're called pants. Pardon me. No. Pardon me. At least Geico makes bundling my home and car insurance easy. I save so much. I have come to call upon... Just text me. Ah. While I'm heading up. <gasps> it's a ghost. For bundling made easy, go to geico.com. It's called self-care. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Of course, we are getting started freshly on our feet here. It is the seventh day of 2023. I am doing, you know, great personally. And we're going to continue to keep up that attitude. We're going to continue to soar like a butterfly, soaring in greatness. That is the motto for this year, soaring in greatness. Um, I appreciate all of you listening to this episode. We've been following the speaker vote very, very closely this whole week. So I knew that I had to put out this episode for you all on this Saturday. We may have new content, a new episode that'll be dropped tomorrow. May is the key word here. Not making any promises that I can't keep as my Mimi always tells me. Um, but thank you all for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I hope you really enjoyed it. Share this episode with a family or friend and take care.